You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new documentary, Wonders Are Many, The Making of Dr. Atomic, our guest today, John Elf, follows the making of a grand opera about the atomic bomb, following composer John Adams and director Peter Sellers over the course of a year as they work to forge the tale of J. Robert Oppenheimer into a music drama like no other, weaving together the process of making an opera with striking new declassified historical footage of Los Alamos and the atomic bomb, Wonders Are Many focuses on the 48 hours leading up to the Trinity atomic test in July of 1945. Elsa's 1980 film, The Day After Trinity, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb, was the winner of the first-ever documentary prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Wonders Are Many will premiere on PBS tonight, Tuesday, December 16th. John Els, welcome to Film School. Well, it's great to be here. How are you doing today? I'm actually uh, on a shoot today. I'm in Washington, D.C. I just uh, was we're just outside the Justice Department um, working on a film. Wow. What, what is, if you don't mind me asking, what are you shooting? It's a, it's a documentary about Guantanamo. It's a big uh, two-hour um, documentary about Guantanamo. We spent a fair amount of time down there this uh, summer. Uh-huh. Um, and it'll be uh, on television in the spring wow, <laughs> if we can finish it. I'm looking forward to that. Do you have a, a working title right now we can keep on? Uh, it's just at the moment, it'll, it's just called Guantanamo. Okay. Great. Very good. Wonderful. Well, thanks, thanks for being with us on your busy day here. Now, sure. That, my first experience with your films was The Day After Trinity. It's always uh-huh. been one of my, my, my favorite documentaries, and uh, I really appreciate you being here today. I'm wondering... How did uh, you you get hold of this project? What what uh, brought you to other than the fact that you'd done Day After Trinity? What focused you on uh, on Peter Sellers? Well, you know, Day After Trinity is kind of a fossil. I mean, the film is something like I don't know. It's twenty. Was it twenty? Yeah. Many, many, many years. Twenty-eight. Old. <laughs> Twenty-eight. I can't believe that. Um, I, you know, we carry around with us the I, germs of films for decades, and I grew up um, in the shadow of the atomic bomb. I actually saw the glow of an atomic bomb when I was a kid, a little six-year-old. Um, and uh, so I had been, that seed had been planted long, long ago. I did The Day After Trinity. Uh, we had a lot of unfinished business in The Day After Trinity, particularly unfinished business about the scientists at Los Alamos who had really severe uh, concerns about the use of that weapon on civilians uh, at the end of the war. Yeah. Um, so that wire crossed with another wire, which was uh, uh, an interest in opera. Um, I despised opera when I was a, a young man, um, and I got involved in a film about Wagner's Ring Cycle at the um, San Francisco Opera, and we did a film called Sing Faster about 10 years ago which was this preposterous giant opera, Wagner's Ring Cycle, seen entirely from backstage from the point of view of the stagehands. Mm-hmm. So I had opera and atomic bombs on the brain. <laughs> and I was working on a film about um, Chez Panisse in Berkeley, their restaurant in Berkeley, and this yes. wonderful woman, Alice Waters, who runs Chez Panisse. And we were in her office filming, and one of the people there just mentioned, said, did you know that John Adams... Is doing a film uh, about the bomb, 
And, I mean, it took me literally like four and a half seconds to realize that was the film that I had been waiting to make yeah. <laughs> for, for yeah. decades. And it, it came, it was interesting, it, it came to me sort of fully formed, um, the idea that we would do it from backstage, the idea that we would weave together the history um, of the bomb with the story of making this opera. Um, even the title um, somehow was present, you know, within the first five or ten seconds. Yeah, it was really weird. It was like almost like a visionary <laughs> moment. Now, were you familiar with the uh, compositions of John Adams before then? You know, I wasn't. Um, I really, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of modern music. I've done a lot of films about it, but I don't particularly care for it. I was not familiar with John's music, and the, my father was a great fan of John Adams' music, um, and, I, and one of my concerns was that I would get involved in this and that I would I would hate the opera. I mean, that happens sometimes. You, when we do these process films about things that are being made, particularly uh, performance art, you sometimes find yourself in a position where you really don't like the um, the piece of work that's being done. Now, fortunately, um, I, you know, as John composed this opera and as I began to hear sketches um, and began to hear uh, little synthesizer mock-ups that he was doing, um, I, I just I fell in love with it from the, from the first minute. Not all of it. There are parts of it um, that I find are pretty rough going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, when Dr. Atomic is really in a groove and really working, it's, uh, it's astonishing. Well, and you do capture how it was composed, too, in many ways, in, in that, that, that there are just clips of information and what scientists were saying to each other at the time that Adams is working into his his uh, his compositions and and you show show that process going on even uh, working with uh, the, the singers and telling them uh, there's one great little scene where he's telling somebody just to discard all the rest that he put into the the, the one line you know because yeah. that's what a good composer would have done sing, sing yeah, it as just, if a good composer had written yeah. it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the conception of the opera was very bold. Um, yeah, we did not, in the film, uh, get into the, the interesting problem they had that they there was a librettist who was actually writing an original libretto um, who they had worked with before, a woman in England, uh, and she bailed out of the project fairly early on. So they were suddenly left with the conception for the opera and some of the music actually written by John and no libretto, no words. So Peter... <laughs> Peter cowboyed up and said, look, I'll, I'll construct this thing out of existing materials. Um, and he, you know, it's this wild, eclectic collection of stuff. It's it's old, old. It's actually outtakes from the day after Trinity that they listened to, and they developed the character of um, Robert Wilson, the young physicist, uh, from outtakes in the day after Trinity. They found poetry that was a favorite of um, Oppenheimer's Baudelaire poetry. They got a lot of old um, Manhattan Project documents and correspondence that had been declassified in the last couple of years and cobbled this thing together like a big, sort of like a big nuclear quilt. Um, and, I mean, what's astonishing is that it works at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's astonishing to me, too, is that there's humor in it. There's a, there's a good deal of humor yeah. th throughout, throughout this opera about, well, the, the last days before the... Uh, the the uh, testing of the first atomic bomb. So that that's a tribute to them. Well, yeah, I mean, you. you know, the fact of the matter is that if, you know, you have to kind of laugh in the face of this, you know, uh, and if it's if it was an opera and if it was a film, frankly, that was deadly serious from top to bottom, um, nobody would watch it. We wouldn't be talking about it today. <laughs> um, you know, and it would drive people out of the theater. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of those guys, those Manhattan Project guys, were hilariously funny people. I actually I got to know Oppenheimer's brother Frank quite well after Robert died, um, and Frank was one of the funniest guys on earth. Really? Huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they were they were guys who knew how to live. They knew how to have a good time. They knew how to ride horses. They knew how to uh, party. They were great. Um, you know, they were womanizers. They, uh, I mean, they were an astonishing sort of larger than life bunch. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there uh, are belly laughs in this opera should not be um, shouldn't be surprising. Yeah. Did uh, were you familiar with uh, Peter Sellers before you started? You know, I wasn't. Um, I, to my surprise, when I finally met Peter for the first time, uh, I, I learned then that he had used the day after Trinity as one of the sources um, for the opera. No, I, I hadn't met him. Um, I, I knew his work. Um, had stumbled across his work on television, um, and. I mean, he's an utterly delightful guy. Uh, I'm just utterly, utterly, um, you know, this cherub of a person. Uh, One thing that did not make it into the film is that um, Peter is is, is addicted to bear hugs. I mean, uh, Peter (laughs) bear hugs everyone in sight all day long. Uh, So the film actually had a hugectomy by the time it was done, and there are no bear hugs remaining in the film, unfortunately. So the next film I do about Peter will have to begin and end with bear hugs. He, now, he, even at points in the film where he where he said out loud he was concerned and and anxious and all the rest of it, he has an internally upbeat sort of mindset and mentality. At least he yeah. projects that, and it really comes yeah. across. I was really taken with his editing procedure, the way he went about you know, when he was, <laughs> the copy and paste thing that he was doing on that right. on that board was kind of interesting in this day and age, especially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's for real. Peter does not drive, um, and Peter doesn't use a computer. Um, mm. And um, I, I tried to engage him in conversation about that in one of the interviews, and he kind of didn't want to go there. Um, I, I, I actually am kind of a cut-and-paste guy myself, and I, and I grew up making films where we literally, with a pair of scissors and a glue stick, would cut up transcripts and rearrange them, and we do the structuring on our documentaries yeah. uh, that way. I still do a lot of the structuring on documentaries, in fact, on this one, with uh, three-by-five cards that we shuffle around. And there's something very calming about the way Peter works with the scissors, the noise, the sound of the scissors, uh, the sound of the paper, the slow, deliberate uh, pasting. Uh, there's something almost ritualistic uh, about, well, you, well something ritualistic about Peter yeah. in general and something particularly ritualistic about him and his his workspace is really sort of like a, a shrine, like a, a sanctified place. He has incense candles burning and Virgin yeah, uh, yeah. of Guadalupe candles burning. And How many of those? He must just... have thirty of those candles behind his desk. Yeah. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I shot a whole. I shot. Must have shot. I must have shot fifteen minutes of those candles. We have. A, we could have done a. <laughs> we did, in fact, at one point, have a whole candle montage in the film, but it uh, <laughs> it dipped the dust. Uh, we're speaking with John Ellis. The, about his new documentary, Wonders Are Many, The Making of Dr. Atomic, which will premiere tonight on PBS, December 16th. As part uh, of their Independent Lens series. All righty. Yeah. Now, now, you're saying that Peter Sellers is a cherub and a wonderful guy and a sweetheart and bear hugs, but there is a scene in this film where he has replaced uh, Tom Randall, who is playing uh, Robert Wilson, eight days before the premiere of the uh, opera, which threw everything into a frenzy, and you sensed uh, some bad blood and some uh, a lot of tension, uh, at least for a while. Uh, it, what was going on there? Uh, is there something <laughs> that I didn't see? 
No, well, there isn't actually. Um, I mean, there was there was a lot of. You're absolutely right. There was a lot of tension. Um, we were not present when the upheaval happened. In fact, I um, heard about it. Uh, I think the next day. Uh, when Tom came to a rehearsal and Peter announced that Tom was being uh, replaced. As it was a very, very tense public moment in, in the auditorium right. with the entire cast and crew of the opera there. Um, and is you know, it was a really tough moment for Thomas Glenn, the young man who had to step into the spot. Um, uh, we were baffled by it, frankly. Um, I, I've seen the opera a number of times since Thomas Glenn has replaced uh, Tom Randall. And I think Thomas Glenn is a wonderful... Uh, Robert Wilson, but I also thought that that Tom Randall was a, a, a wonderful Robert Wilson. Now, to everyone's credit, um, the day after this happened, I got on the phone immediately to Peter and to Tom Randall and to the opera company and to all the agents involved. I mean, there's a whole sub-story of this that has to do with agents and uh, performing arts unions, and, and there are enormous restrictions on who can talk to film crews and who can't and what they can talk about and when they can talk. I got on the phone to the um, uh, all these folks and everyone, to their credit, said, "Yeah, sure. Let's uh, let's sit down and talk about this on camera. Um, this is part of the process. This is, you know, making art is not easy. Making art is full of pain. Uh, not always, but often full of pain." So we talked to uh, Tom Randall. We did a sit-down interview with Tom. I think the day after he'd been replaced, he had packed up his bags and was ready to um, head for the airport to fly back to London. Talked to Peter uh, at his uh, mom's house. I think the day after that, uh, and then talked to Jerry um, Gerald Finley, who is the uh, the baritone, wonderful Canadian baritone who sings the role with Robert Oppenheimer, and got all sort of three Rashomon perspectives um, on on what had happened. And I think to this day, uh, I'm certainly not entirely clear what happened. I don't think anyone's entirely clear what happened, except that Peter, you know, had a moment of revelation that, that somehow Tom Randall was not it. Yeah. You know, I'd been miscast. Well, yeah, yeah I, I when I was watching it, and not to get too far into this, I almost felt just physically Thomas Glenn would have been a better Oppenheimer. Uh, that, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's just me. But I you know and, yeah. but but nevertheless, nevertheless it, yeah. it, it all worked out wonderfully. And I, I'm thinking about the end of the film and the yeah. and the end of the opera because yeah. uh, there was there was also some tension going on there where uh where uh, John Adams is having trouble even ending it, and it sounded like he just threw something at Peter Sellers uh, that didn't wasn't even necessarily musical at the time. <laughs> and, well, you know, when I began covering the making of this movie, um, the great mystery was how would they end it? How would yeah. they set the atomic bomb off on stage? This is, I mean, <laughs> you know, how do you do that? You know? <laughs> um, and I had had a little bit of experience with making films where we had to try to set the atomic bomb off at the end, and I, I tell you, it's not easy. Um, to their everlasting credit, they they took the very bold step of deciding to not have the bomb explode on stage, um, to have it explode off stage somewhere over there, where the the light and the you know the the, the bad mojo of the uh, atomic bomb flood the stage, but the bomb itself is not there. Um, and Wonders of Many, for many, many months, was structured structured around resolving the mystery of how would they end the, how would they set the bomb off, and it became a problem for us when they didn't set the bomb off. But uh, John Adams composed that extraordinary um, countdown uh, at the end. Yeah. 
and one of our camera guys, Mark Chin, held that, that amazing tight close-up on the conductor, Donald Ronicles. And the minute I saw the rushes on that close-up of Don Ronicles at the end, I, I realized this, this is where the movie has to end. This is the end of the film. Yeah. We have to hold this shot for two minutes um, and let it unfold. It all boils down to these little four notes in a chord that repeat themselves uh, and the human face, and, mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah, the the reactions of the people watching the explosion. It's just it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, it's really, a beautiful way to it end really, it. Really it seemed is. like that was the most complex staging almost too aside from bringing the bomb in which was another uh, yeah. process there building the bomb uh, and <laughs> and, the, and the scaffolding and, yeah yeah did were the things happening that we're not seeing that uh, in constructing that uh, that posed a lot of difficulties for the cast well um, there were things that we didn't see actually we had turned the world upside down to make sure that we covered every second of the construction of that bomb uh, from the very, very beginning. And they, in fact, built the whole plywood core, and someone forgot to call us up, so we missed all that, which was was a problem because I was very interested in the fact that there are, in the plywood, in the core of that stage bomb, there are, in fact, atoms of strontium-90 uh, from the original Trinity really? blast. Yeah. How did yeah. that happen? I mean, there's a little section in the phone which talks about strontium being sent up you know, into the atmosphere from the era of nuclear testing, and then it gets deposited in grass and in trees and in wood. And uh, you and I are all carrying some strontium around, and every tree has a few atoms of strontium from the Trinity bomb in it, believe it or not. Um, so the plywood uh, would have been a wonderful starting point for this, this bizarre sort of, you know, this, this odd provenance and pedigree. Uh, for the for the plywood bomb, there, there's not a whole lot that uh, I'm trying to think if there were there were things that um, were built and then not used. They did have a great big sign that said Los Alamos Labs uh -huh. Main Gate. I want uh, that. They got cut out. <laughs> That's a beautiful uh, sign. I, I it's one that sticks in my mind. It's one of those archetype signs or an icon sign that I, when I saw them yeah. painting that, I immediately knew what that was. And, yeah, yeah, immediately. Well, it's, it never shows up on stage because yeah. they abandon it before opening night. Now, you know, the opera, something I didn't understand was that modern operas get made and remade and remade and recast and they build new sets. And as Dr. Atomic has had a new life, an ongoing life after its San Francisco premiere, um, it's had all sorts of different stagings. The Metropolitan Opera just did it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was completely different staging, and a lot of the uh, cast had changed. Um, it had a different bomb in it. Um, I mean, it was quite astonishing. It's it's really sort of a different a different opera in many ways. I was curious of uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the work of Peter Sellers. Uh, he, in the past, he's done this where he's taken a relatively modern event and turned it into an opera. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's I'm sure for many who are opera fans, people who are hardcore opera fans, must be disconcerting from them for them in some way to see Nixon in China and then something now yeah. about about nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not a hardcore opera fan, so in a way I'm the wrong guy to ask. Yeah. But having said that, um, you know, great opera is great opera, and if you, if you pull an opera out of the headlines and it's a lousy opera, and there have been some recently, um, then, you know, hardcore opera fans and everyone else are not going to like it. The I think there's a general feeling with Dr. Atomic that I mean it's a really it's a really masterful uh, piece of music. It's a major major 
operatic um, construction. It's 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 exceedingly enjoyable in the opera house. I mean, it's a real kick to well in, in to listen the, to it in the context of opera, the sweeping drama, the the, the, yeah. the the great questions that are posed in opera. This is certainly. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine a more uh, uh, a deeper subject than the annihilation of the of the species. Well, and, and also and, the character of J. Robert and, Oppenheimer. And, yeah, yeah, and how he factors sure. into all that. Sure. So, now, we're, yeah, we're well, speaking. you know, in opera they say he dies, she dies, everybody dies, uh, and that's kind of <laughs> this is the granddaddy of those uh, of those sorts of operas. <laughs> there is one uh, interesting departure from history. Um, John and Peter wanted very much to develop the, the character of Kitty Oppenheimer as the sort of the feminine principle, pushing back against all these guys with their bombs. Okay. Uh, you know, the, 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 the woman who knew better, pushing back against the boys and toys who wanted to, you know, blow up all these Japanese civilians. Uh, and, and the role of Kitty Oppenheimer is written like that. Kitty has these extraordinary passages, um, really longing for peace, longing uh, for protecting the children of the world. Um, in fact, there's no evidence at all that Kitty Oppenheimer wanted to do anything except see that weapon succeed um, as much as her husband wanted it to succeed uh, and bring the war to an end. Um, so, you know, in a way, Oppenheimer and Kitty Oppenheimer don't, they no longer belong to themselves. They have entered, have become part of our mythology, part of our folklore, part of our kind of national myth. Um, and I think as new Oppenheimers emerge in years to come, and I hope they do, we'll probably get farther and farther from the real historical Oppenheimer. Just as we're, I mean, we're a long way from the historical Hamlet these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy named Hamlet who didn't have a whole lot to do with what's on, on stage. We're speaking with John Ellis. His new documentary is Wonders Are Many, The Making of Dr. Atomic, which will premiere tonight on PBS. That's December 16th. Uh, and we're talking about Oppenheimer. There's a, a great quote that you put in. Um, he's saying it. There are no secrets in nature. There are secrets about the thoughts and intentions of men. Sometimes they're secret because a man doesn't like to know what he's up to if he can avoid it. And and Oppenheimer just laughs as if he's speaking about himself right then. I, I, was, I was wondering, did, did you learn anything new about Oppenheimer making this film as you know you've learned a lot back in the day of tr after trinity but yeah. did this bring new insights to you well that's interesting i mean that's an amazing thought isn't it that yeah. quote i mean you know i i mean the very idea that a man could could concoct that sentence impromptu yeah. in the middle of an interview with edward r murrow yeah. is astonishing i mean it's you know it's like a little piece of tolstoy or a little piece of shakespeare yeah. um well, in the course of making this film, uh, there was a the definitive biography of Robert Oppenheimer finally was written and published by a wonderful guy named Marty Sherwin, together with Kai Bird. That had been absent from all of our consciousness of, of Oppenheimer, and we learned a lot um, about uh, how much Oppenheimer fought against the development of even larger weapons, the hydrogen bomb specifically. Um, and there's a whole other story about Oppenheimer was brought to his knees, largely because of his opposition to the hydrogen bomb, which was a thousand times larger than the Hiroshima bomb, and which he considered a genocidal weapon. But in the same breath, I learned a lot about Oppenheimer. I mean, Oppenheimer was no pacifist, and Oppenheimer was no... Um, you know, was no one who felt that we could put the nuclear genie, nor should we put the nuclear genie back in the bottle. And at the same time, he was 
um, trying to stop the development of these enormous mega weapons, hydrogen bombs. He was, uh, in the same breath, really working to um, to maintain and perfect the American arsenal um, of smaller weapons. Uh, there came a point when he was finally cut out of the defense establishment uh, after his security hearing. Um, so, you know, I, I guess he became an ever more complex guy for me. Um, uh, you know, I feel we could probably go back and make a third film uh, about him. There's probably enough depth there. There are not a whole lot of guys that can handle having three biographical films made about them, but I have a feeling I could go back and... Yeah, I, I'd watch it. <laughs> I'd love know, to see something like yeah, that. I just, I just want to jump in because we're, we're running short on time. Yeah. Um, there, you've, you've devoted a significant part of your adult life to the exploration of this issue of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Do you think, and, and by the way, just on a personal note, the first time I saw that house blow up in the, in the, uh, the, the we've all seen that training film or from, of that sure. event as that home is obliterated, it, in that process, it obliterated any idea that I ever had about surviving one of these weapons. The duck and um, cover went out the yeah, door. Duck and cover just completely left my head at yeah. that point. But do you have any sense that we really truly understand uh, the significance of the weaponry that we possess and that we have learned anything since the the uh, the bombing of Nagasaki? Is it? Do you think it is in, 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 uh, ingrained in us that we can ever use these weapons? Well, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think it's ingrained in us, meaning the United States. I mean, I, I would be – let me say, I, I have no doubt that someone is going to use one of these things in my lifetime, yeah. probably a small one. Do you think, uh, do you think probably, this situation with India and Pakistan is the potential for something like that to happen? That's, uh, that's a leading candidate at the moment. Yeah. However, uh, I also have come to believe that the the chances of a nuclear war on the scale that that – was possible in the 1950s and 60s. That is an all-out, you know, a, a nuclear holocaust uh, between the superpowers. I mean, that I, I, that I find that extremely hard to believe that 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 could happen now. I think it could have happened in the 1960s, but certainly not now. Now these things go in cycles, um, and the awareness of the danger rises and falls. Um, well, they also uh, have smaller weaponry now. Smaller. They nuclear, also have smaller weaponry. A public misunderstanding of these weapons can go in both directions. There, people can be lulled into a numb uh, misunderstanding of how dangerous they are, but people also can be, uh, you know, overly alarmed about what these things will do. I mean, for instance, one one Hiroshima-sized bomb will blow a mile-wide hole in a major city. It will blow a mile-wide hole in Manhattan. It'll blow a mile-wide hole uh, in Irvine, in San Francisco. Um, it's not going to destroy the state. It's not going to destroy the Los Angeles metropolitan area. It's going to kill a million people. But the use of one of these uh, weapons is, in fact, there's a finite amount of of tragedy, physical tragedy that comes from that. The the civil and social and political tragedy, I mean, is, is unmeasurable from the use of even a small one of these. Um, but I find that, that people are bizarrely overestimate the power of the weapons, but at the same time, bizarrely underestimate the power of the weapons. I mean, it's a very, very... Uh, people don't understand the d difference between big weapons and small weapons. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that we we. Uh, I, my fear, just <laughs> throw my my two cents in here, is that even a even a small nuke used uh, to go after an underground facility is is cracking open Pandora's box, and that's my. Oh fear. yeah, sure. Well, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. B- before we let you go, is 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 uh, wonders are many. Does that come from the Bhagavad Gita? Or, uh? It doesn't actually. It actually. I was afraid you're going to ask that because <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> um, it comes from. Um, there's a, a play called Antigone by Sophocles, okay. and I, I don't pretend yeah. to be a, uh, a you know a classic scholar at all. I never read that stuff. But years ago, someone mentioned the the phrase to me, "Wonders are many," and it's actually from there's a wonderful poem that the chorus recites, um, and it's all about science. It's all about how wonders are many, and none is more wonderful than man. Oh yes, uh, yes. And it's uh-huh. all about how man bestrides the great earth and man tames the birds and man you know can cultivate crops and man basically man can tame nature um and i i really chose it because i just always loved the sentiment that wonders are many you know that the world is full of wonders it's full of dark wonders uh it's full of of wonders like the poetry of baudelaire or the music of john adams uh and dark wonders like um nuclear weapons yes yes you know that's also a song from the gospel at colonus which i don't know if you ever had a chance to see oh that. no i didn't know that yeah i i just when you when you said that and when you uh, went on about it, I, it it suddenly struck me that and it's a beautiful song from the gospel of colonus one oh. many yeah uh, so so anyway. <laughs> anyway well you've inspired me as soon as i as soon as i as soon as i wrap up guantanamo here i'll do the gospel from colonus <laughs> you, you, you ought to check it out it, it's a it's a wonderful uh well, I, I wouldn't call it an opera, but it's a wonderful musical. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, thank you so much for being with us. The uh, documentary, Wonders Are Many, will screen tonight, The Makings of Dr. Atomic. John Els, thanks for being on Film School. Hey, thanks so much for having me, and keep up the good work. To learn more about Film School listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.